All right. Good morning, everybody. He's risen. risen All right. What a great day. I love, I know you're supposed to say Resurrection Sunday. It just does not flow off of my tongue. I, I like to say Easter. So forgive me if you're opposed to that. Happy Easter to everybody. Kind of flows. Um, this morning, we're going to be in Matthew, um, beginning in chapter uh, 27, verse 45. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, that's where we'll be this morning. A couple things going on. <coughs> Sorry. I surprise you. Worship night coming up April 29th at 7 p.m. Journeyman Conference, Get the, sign up for that as soon as you can. I've signed up. I just did that this morning, by the way. Um, you can go and you can scan that real quick right now with your phone. Um, or you can get it off the flyer that's on the on the wall on the way out, and then you can you can. Um, we're going to head out because our worship night's April 29th. We're going to head out on the 30th, or I am anyway, <clears throat> and that's a Saturday. So all day Saturday down there. Garage sale coming up, uh, May 27th, 28th. Keep your things and bring them when you can. That's it. Uh, youth, uh, the youth uh, roller, roller skating is next weekend, so that's the 23rd. At 4.45, I believe they're meeting at the church and they're heading down. There's a flyer out there on the wall. I don't think we have any printed off right now. It took a ton of ink to print off the flyer. So we're kind of cheesy and cheap. So anyway, that's next uh, That's next weekend, next Sunday at 4.45. All right. All right. <clears throat> My throat, sorry. Let's pray and we'll get started. Lord, we thank you for this morning. Uh, another... Um, wonderful Easter where we get to celebrate and remember what you did for us on the cross and that you rose again. Um, your resurrection is the highlight for our walk with you. As JC already prayed, it is the exclamation point that you were an accepted sacrifice to our God for our sins and that death couldn't hold you because you were the perfect lamb without spot, without blemish. And um, we're forgiven because of this. And so we thank you for that, Lord. We thank you for um, showing up and not just ascending, but staying around and ministering to the people before you rose uh, up into heaven and um, let people see you and, and help the doubters. And I pray that'd be the same for this morning. Some people won't attend church except for a few times out of the year. And this is one of those times nationwide. There are people that wouldn't normally darken the door of a church, but are here and are there. And I pray that you minister to their hearts to know that um, you're an everyday Jesus. You're an all the time Jesus, that you're a wonderful savior. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to back up a little bit and not just start with the morning that they found him uh, or didn't find him in his tomb. I'm going to go back to verse 45 of chapter 27 of Matthew. Now from the sixth hour, which is noon, until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And remember, last week we discussed that. God purposely put that in our path, that Psalm 22. Um, we were just at the right time, at the right point in Scripture to go along with Easter. Psalm 22 starts off with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus is at the lowest point of his relationship with his father he's ever been. And of course, we discussed how some people are bothered by this, like, Jesus, you did so well up until the last moments on the cross, and then you, and you kind of blew it, Lord, and you kind of said, you know, what's happening? Like, it was a surprise to you, but that's actually what had to be said. For the first time in Jesus' existence, he's being separated from the Father. The world's sins are being cast upon him, and he's being judged for mine and for yours. 
And so he is separated from God. He's never been separated from the Father. And that's why he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's, He's actually for the first time without that knowledge of what's going on in heaven. What a difficult time that would be for him. But he goes through it anyway, willingly, loving us. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and the shame. Verse 47, some of those who stood there, when they heard that, or when they heard him say this, they said, this man is calling for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. And the rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. As I was studying, I usually breeze over that part. Every, I think every year since I've been a pastor, I've breezed over it. First of all, I don't understand the whole sponge and the wine thing. And some say it was mixed with gall so that he didn't have any pain. So it was a little bit of an anesthesia. And you can go in that route when you're teaching this. What bothered me about this is out of the whole crowd, one guy has compassion and pity on the man on the cross, probably not believing either, but wanted to give him something to drink, not to be mean but honestly didn't know what else to do and did it. And the rest said, no, don't help him. Don't do it. Let's see if Elijah will come. For them, it was a dog and pony show. For them, it was, I've just, I've never read that much cruelty before, I don't think. To be standing at the cross is one thing. Um, you know, we've had the death sentence for a long time in our country. And, and as, as, earned as it may be at times, it's different when you sit in the room and watch it happen. And not saying it's, I'm not opposed to it at all. I mean, it's God's idea. It was God's plan. But to to have that kind of cruelty to say, let's see what happens. Let's look a little closer. Don't do things, you know, to make it easier or whatever. Let's see the full weight and effect of it, you know, is a cruelty that's a, there's, there's a soullessness there. You know, there's no compassion. There's no mercy. There's no empathy in that person. The, the whole crowd says, no, no, don't give him something to drink. Let's see if Elijah will come. You know, don't give him any relief. It bothers me. I'm amazed at what people can do without Christ, what I can do, what I'm capable of without Jesus. I'm so thankful for him. I'm thankful for the person I've become. I'm thankful for the being conformed into his image, not yet attained, but I'm I'm so much better than I was before I knew Jesus. The things I was capable of, the things that didn't bother me about people or zero empathy, zero compassion. Just for me, it was 8 billion people or at the time, 6 billion people on the earth and who'd miss a few, you know, kind of thing. What difference does it make? You know, so much has changed when Christ comes into our hearts, when he comes in and makes his home with us and fills us with his spirit, we begin to have empathy and compassion like he has empathy and compassion. And I guess that's what struck me about this. I couldn't read past it without talking about it. There was one guy that saw it. There was one guy that was interested in helping and the rest tried to stop him. And that, that's concerning to me, what we're capable of. Verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. We know from another text, he said, it is finished. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and and the earth quaked 
and the rocks were split and the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves, after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. I'm surprised how many Christians don't know that that exists in Scripture. I had someone come up to me a few years ago and say, my so-and-so, some relative who was visiting, I don't know what Bible he's reading out of, but there ain't no earthquakes in the Bible or, you know. Well, we do do New King James Version, and that's offensive, but it's in the King James too, if that's your cup of tea. And it's in every other translation. In the, what that tells me is you don't know the Bible. You're not reading it. These things are incredible. People got out of their graves and were walking around, old relatives, and they were seeing people that they hadn't seen because they're dead, walking around. This is happening. Matthew doesn't make a big deal out of it. It's like an honorable mention, you know, kind of thing in there. But I think I'd be interested. I'd be following these people around. Is that grandma? You know, what are you doing? You know, this is a powerful moment. The veil is what we focus on most of the time. The veil in the temple was a 10 inch thick blue curtain with some inscription or, you know, embroidery and, and things. And that kept people from going into the Holy of Holies. The, the, the temple was divided into two sections. This, this, uh, Whole, the holy place, mostly holy, you know, and, and that's where the priest could go. But then on the other side was the Ark of the Covenant. That was the seat of God, the mercy seat and the angels and everything. And that was the holy of holies and no one could go there. And so to keep that distance, they put this huge curtain and they hung it heavy, 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 10 inches thick. I mean, you know, not just a curtain like you'd see a, in our homes or anything, but this is a curtain, like a wall, portable wall, a flexible wall. It's ripped from top to bottom. I mean, who does that? God does that. We know later on from Hebrews, there's a great description that describes why that took place and the purpose of it. And that the barrier that's between us on the holy side and the holy of holies is no longer exists. Actually says at one point that Christ is that curtain. And although he was ripped, he made the way that we can boldly come to that throne of grace and mercy in time of need. No other barrier is necessary. There isn't anything keeping us from coming to God. And there isn't anything or anyone keeping you from coming to God this morning. That veil was ripped. The earth quaked. The rocks were split. The graves were opened. Many bodies of the saints, those are believers in the Old Testament, knowing there was a Messiah, but didn't know that Jesus was the Messiah, get up out of the grave and are walking around. So, verse 54, when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly saying, truly, this was the son of God. Everybody knows what that means, but modern day Bible scholars, it seems like. Or liberals. Well, he never actually said he was God. He just, he, he said he was the son of God. Well, these guys all know the importance of saying you're the son of God. You are truly calling yourself equal to God. They knew that. Even the centurion, the Roman guy, stand there says, no, he wasn't a phony. He wasn't just a holy man. He wasn't a guru. He wasn't a prophet. He truly was different from all of those things and all those titles. He was the son of God. Huge difference. And when they see these miraculous things taking place and they see the entire creation reacting to the death of Jesus on the cross, they said, this is him. 
What a terrible place to find yourself in. I found myself in that place as a centurion, not a centurion, but when I got saved and I was in a similar place. Realizing that you're in the place of, um, you don't have to be in the military to, to understand this. Anybody who's an unbeliever has persecuted Christ to some extent because you haven't come to him. You've made up excuses why you didn't want to come to him. So you kind of badmouthed them or you talked him down or you didn't make a big deal out of it. And you find yourself in the position the centurion does, looking up at the one you make fun of, realizing, oh, he is the one. He is the only one. And, of course, fear comes across your mind and your heart. It says in verse 55 that many women who followed Jesus from Galilee ministering to him were there looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Now, when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of rock. And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. Now, they're not spying. They're trying to figure out where they're going to meet up Sunday morning. Not a big deal. Don't want to get technical, but Jesus more than likely was crucified on Thursday, not on Friday. Friday was a special Sabbath. Saturday was the regular Sabbath. There are two Sabbaths in a row, and that's why we get confused when we read that. But you can't have three days and three nights unless he died on Thursday. No big deal. We can still celebrate Good Friday, and God doesn't shun us for that. The point is, they would normally embalm and do what they needed to do. It's it's a process, and it takes hours to do. Washing the body, preparing the cloth, mixing it with aloes and, and spices and all these things that you would do to preserve the body and to put it into capsulation, basically. Well, they didn't have time to do that, so they're watching to see where they're going to put Jesus. They love him that much. They're not so disappointed that, like the men, they're running and hiding in, in rooms saying, well, hope they don't come arrest us next. They're actually sitting there watching to see what's going to happen to Jesus because regardless of whether he did everything they thought he was going to do, because they don't have faith either, these women, they want to do the right thing, and they appreciate what he had done for them. And so they're watching to see where this body goes because they want to handle it. Backing up a few verses here, this Joseph had built his own tomb, made it for himself, rich guy, you kind of get your own garden and get your tomb ready and everything, and laid Jesus in it. I think it's very symbolic for us that Jesus took the place of our graves, lays him in his grave, gives it to him, gives him the place of honor, gives him the place, you know, I'm not a big death guy. I don't even think there should be a funeral for me. Just, I don't know, throw me on the back 40, whatever. It doesn't make any difference to me. I'm just that way. Not everybody's like that. I'm a little insensitive. I'm sure there needs to be grieving and you have all the songs you want, but I'll never hear any of them. Just do what you need to do. But that isn't how it is back then. Traditionally speaking, the bigger the grave, the better you were. The taller the tombstone, the more wealthy and influential you were, and so on. This guy's got his own. He's got his own garden. He's got his own grave. 
But because he becomes a follower of Jesus, that all changed in his heart. It isn't about me and my memories. It's about him and his memories. And Joseph takes the time and the opportunity to say, I don't have much to give you, but what I can give you is my reputation. I can give you my honor. I can give you everything I plan for my life, and I give it to you. I don't know that Joseph has any faith either that Jesus is going to rise from the dead. None of these people do. Jesus was that impactful that it didn't matter that he's actually dead. In the sense that he didn't take care of the Roman yoke. He didn't overthrow, you know, like like they had hoped he was going to do. Save now. Hosanna, Hosanna. Save us from this Roman bondage. Well, he didn't. He died instead. But even in that disappointment and that fear... They still honor him for who he was and what he had taught them. It's all going to change, of course. Verse 62. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate. These snakes. I I inserted myself, by the way. They called him a brood of vipers. I can call him a brood of vipers if I want to. Saying, sir, now listen to this. I breezed through this too. Not today. Sir, we remember while he was still alive, how that deceiver, liar, said, after three days I will rise. How come they remember that? And none of the other disciples do? How is it that the unbelievers know the scriptures oftentimes better than the believers do? Let me read something to you. If you turn to Luke 24, a different, you know, uh, account. I love all four gospels. They have different accounts, different perspectives of the same event. But this Luke 24 is interesting to me. Let's see, verse, uh, we'll start in verse 6, I think it is. Well, let's start in verse 5. Then, as they were afraid, the angel showed himself, and they're scared, a little background. They were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth and said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee saying, the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. They didn't know. They didn't remember. We were singing a psalm one Sunday, but the person who was a believer or said they were anyway, didn't understand it. And I get funny texts and emails from people. And this is one of them. It was like, I don't know why we're singing about other gods. We're not supposed to be singing about other gods. And the song, how, what, what's the song? It's, uh, um, you are above other gods. and all well, He's not above other gods. There are no other gods. They're mad. It's like, I had, to, I had to calm them down, first of all, and say, no, 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 we're not blaspheming. We're not saying there's like a bunch of gods and we choose the biggest and the best. And so we're, we're, reading a, we're singing a psalm. It's, it's a direct psalm. We just put it to music. It's in the Bible. God calls them other gods. Little G's, of course. But it's anything, you know. Well, okay, I just don't think we should be singing that. Well, it's in the Bible. It's, they were so prideful they couldn't give that up. They were mad, mad. I'm just mad that we're singing about. We need to know his word. We need to be spending time in it and understand it and 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 know it better. How is it that these unbelieving Pharisees and Sadducees, that's all that's on their mind. It could it be that they're terrified that it's going to, that he is going to get up. Doesn't seem to be. It seems like they're afraid he's going to get his body stolen and then they're going to say, and then everybody's going to think, and then they're going to look bad. 
And it's going to be another deception that they're going to have to undo. But they're very aware of the fact that Jesus is going to rise from the dead, or at least he said he was going to. But none of the disciples are thinking that way. I think fear does that. I think expectations does that to us. I think when we have fear and certain expectations, we're blind to the reality of what's going to take place. I can have high expectations sometimes, and then when what actually happens doesn't meet those high expectations, I'm disappointed when actually it's a really good thing. It happened just like it was supposed to. I thought it was going to happen a different way, but it didn't. It's okay. It happened just the way it was supposed to. They're concerned, and they know, and the disciples aren't thinking that way. Therefore, command the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest the disciples come by uh, night and steal him away and say to the people, he is risen from the dead, so that the last deception will be worse than the first. So Pilate said to them, you have your guard. Go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. Really going to make sure that this grave stays full. You know, chapter 28. Now, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. Behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. Apparently, they passed out from how scary this guy looked. You know, It would be. A little disconcerting to see all that take place. These are tough guys. These are guards. I mean, and they had never seen anything like this before. And so it's a, it's an interesting thing. Verse five, but the angel answered and said to the women, do not be afraid. These guys are afraid. They so afraid they became like dead men. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here for he is risen. He said, come, see the place where the Lord lay. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And indeed, he is going before you into Galilee. There uh, you will see him. Behold, I have told you. These angels have interesting missions, don't they? You know, whether it was the, uh, was the shepherds out in the field that got to hear, you know, um, or anybody, anytime going up to Mary saying, Mary, you're going to have, a, you're going to have, Baby God, you know, you're going to have Jesus come in the flesh. He's going to come from you. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. Joseph, Joseph, you got to go to Egypt. I mean, they had these messages, you know. Daniel, I was sent. As soon as you prayed, I was sent. And I got held up and I was fighting. And finally, you know, uh, Michael came and he, t- so Ga- I'm here now, Gabriel, I'm ready to preach. Michael's fighting up there, but he let me go. And cr- just crazy things happening in the spiritual world. It happens all the time. All the time, kids need to know that. I say kids, I don't mean that we all need to know that. We forget sometimes that we're two or more gathered in his name. He's in our midst. I mean, you know he's in the room right now? He's here? I mean, I get the sense, and sometimes we get warm, fuzzy feelings at certain songs, and we mistake that for being the Holy Spirit. But no, he's, he's present with us right now, hearing us talk about him and his resurrection and kids need to know that too. Kids are very interested in those things. And as adults, we, we tend to steer more towards 
the list of things we're supposed to do and the things we're not supposed to do. That's what we teach our kids. And here's the Ten Commandments, kid. That's good. Nothing wrong teaching those things. But it's the spiritual things. It's the things that are happening all around us all the time that we're just out of our sight, but very, very present. We skip over because as adults, it's very uncomfortable for us to talk about sometimes. Because we become as dead men when we think about these things. We're, we don't want to see an angel. We don't necessarily want to see these things pop into our lives. But the kids are like, is this real? Does this really happen? Absolutely does. When we teach the book of Revelation in Sunday school, they just, they just light up. Oh, they love it. And I think we do too. I hope we do. This angel shows up, just one. Incredible power. An unbelievable message. Don't be afraid. Listen to what I'm telling you. He's risen. Go look in the tomb. See for yourself he's not there. Then get out of here and go tell as many people as possible he is up. And he's going to meet you in Galilee. Now, don't forget that. He's going to meet you in Galilee. I mean, can you imagine trying to relay that to these women who are absolutely dead set on the fact that they were going to be embalming a body that morning? They were going to be wrapping up Jesus. And I don't know if you've ever been... I've got a friend that's in the funeral industry, and it is not a fun process to do that to a body on day one, let alone on day three back here. I mean, you consider that day one, okay, not to get too gross, but things haven't settled and things are, you know, we're, we can get this done and get them in where they need to go and be done with it. But now you got to wait three days later after that body's been dead, gone through rigor mortis and come back out of it again. Fluids. I mean, it's just an unbelievable mess what happens to us. And these women are coming in. I mean, what hearts, what amazing hearts, what amazing love. Let's say we'll be there in three days. We don't want to break the Sabbath, either one of them. So we've got to come Sunday morning and then we'll go and take care of this is first thing in the morning and we'll wrap and wash the body and do all these things. What they were expecting was definitely not this. They go from their fickle feelings of sorrow, mourning, loss, hopelessness, um, I mean, they've been let down so far, not, not, not because of Jesus, but because of their expectations of Jesus. And they're here to do what they need to do to an angel showing up saying, he's not here, he's risen, he's alive. He's going to talk to you here when he gets to Galilee. Make sure you tell everybody, take your spices and everything with you. We're not going to need those today. What a change. What a beautiful change to go from hopelessness to hope. It's an amazing thing. I was just sitting here singing songs and I was remembering the first day I got saved. There's a lot of moments in between then and now that I remember ministry wise and God ministering to me wise, but the, it's so vivid to me sitting there. I can, I know I can see everything in the room. It's color. I know who is sitting in that bunk and that bunk and over here and over here. And I'm in this and I see where the TV is and I see the video in and I can see everything perfectly. And when I went from hopelessness, loss, um, it, you didn't call it that when you're unsaved. 
When you're unsaved, you don't necessarily say, you don't walk around saying, I'm hopeless. You have such a defense. You have so many walls. You have such a, an attitude about it. You're almost aggressively angry towards life because you're not going to let, you're going to live your life no matter what, even though it's hopeless, you know, kind of thing. And that was my attitude. And to go from that to what I've become, that moment in a twinkling of an eye, this salvation, this being born again was just unbelievable. Absolutely washed, absolutely changed, new heart, new mind, had a lot of bad habits still, but new heart, new mind instantly. Hope like I'd never had before. Purpose, understanding, seeing the world, everything came into the right picture, into the right shape that it was supposed to be. That's what's happened to this group of ladies. He's risen. Don't forget. Don't be afraid. So, verse 8, they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. Now, they're not supposed to be afraid. Don't be afraid. We'll work on that. I'm a little afraid right now. I don't know what they're afraid of. I know they're not afraid of Jesus at all. Maybe they're afraid of how the news is going to be received. I still struggle with that. I'm a pastor. The more I talk about Jesus in my life, the more Jesus shows up in my life. It's just a fact. The more I talk about him out loud, the more he shows up in my life. The more I recognize miracles, the more I recognize his divine hand in my life, the more I see these things, the more I talk about him, the more he's in the forefront of my life, And that's why I do what I do and I live why I live. I'm not a pastor for you. I am. I'm a pastor for me. I do this and I get to see it firsthand. But I still get worried about how people are going to receive the gospel when I share the gospel with them. I don't know. I don't want them to look at me that way. It's a dumb fear, isn't it? What do I care? I do. I don't want them to look at me and say, you know, you're one of those. Or, oh, we were really great. We were talking about guns and we were talking about this and that. And now you bring Jesus into it and uh, it got really awkward really quick. Nobody likes that. I don't know if they're worried about that because the disciples certainly fulfill that fear, don't they? He is risen and they thought they'd lost. Yeah, they've seen now they're crazy. You're the disciples. You're the ones that are supposed to believe us. Of all the people on the earth, you're the ones that were supposed to say, thank you for letting us know. We were kind of, but instead they said, you, and they gave them the look because they couldn't believe. I don't know what they're afraid of, but it does not stop them from going out quickly and it does not stop their joy. They ran to bring the disciples word. I've got to tell. I've got to do it. They're the carriers of the message. And as they went with the message, with the mission, obedience in action to tell the disciples, behold, Jesus met them. I found that to be true in every area of my life. I am going to, regardless of their facial expressions, regardless of the nodding of the heads during a service or the shaking of the heads during the service, whether that's the wide awake eyes or the falling asleep eyes, regardless of the emails, good or bad, I'm going to talk about Jesus and what my Lord's done for me. And as I go to carry that message, he meets me every single time. I'm closer to him. And he says to them, rejoice. 
So they came and held him by the feet and worshiped him. Jesus said, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee and there they will see me. It's that constant, don't be afraid. We're told the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? Okay. He keeps telling him over and over again, don't be afraid. It's a different fear. It's not the fear of the Lord. It's some other kind of fear that they've got going on. And Jesus keeps trying to reassure us and them, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brethren, go to Galilee and there they will see me. Now, while they were going, behold, some of the guard, these are the guards that were like dead men earlier. Behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers saying, tell, and said, tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. It's a, it's a lose-lose situation for these guys. If you tell the truth, they're going to be at odds with these guys. If they tell a lie and say that they stole him while we were asleep, well, they get killed for that. That's the penalty for losing a prisoner, even though he's dead. You lost a dead man? How do you lose a dead man? So they try to cover it up and say, hey, you know, and if, if it does come to the governor's ears that you lost the dead man, we'll make sure that you're not prosecuted for that great sin. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. And it's hard to get past the fact that there were dead people walking around and that 500 people saw and witnessed Jesus alive but they're going to do their best to cover it up. That's all they can do is cover and cover and cover. But there isn't enough money in the world to cover the truth. It always comes out. It always comes out. We don't want to be humiliated. We don't want them knowing that it worked. They told them, it's, it's interesting, the two different messengers, one were the ladies who were telling the truth out of joy and Another were the guards telling the truth out of fear. You guys got to know what happened. Verse 16, when the 11 disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain, which Jesus had appointed for them, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. It's nice of Matthew to put it that way. I'm going to bring up Thomas right now. You know, some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. There's the Trinity. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I'm always going to be with you. When you go do this, I'm going with you. I want you to do this mission, not only baptizing people with water, but also teaching them the truth. You've got to teach all of it, the whole counsel of God. All of it, it says, teaching them to observe all the things that I've commanded you. I want you to go do that. That's your mission now. If you turn to Acts chapter one, that's where we're going to finish up today.
in the gospel of John, which we read at the sunrise service, um, a little different take on that. Jesus had breathed on them to receive the Holy Spirit at that time, after his resurrection, but before his ascension. We pick up the story here with Dr. Luke. He writes the book of Acts. This is Luke part two. It's what, basically what Acts is. And he says, verse 1, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, which we just read, gave commandments to them, go do this, to whom he also presented himself alive after, he suffered, after suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days, speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Walked around for a long time with these guys. Verse 4, Luke picks up the story. And being assembled together with them after his resurrection, but before his ascension, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. That's after he breathed on them to receive the Holy Spirit, which they did. This is the second work. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, pay attention, boys. <laughs> it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You'll be able to fulfill that great commission once you're baptized with the Holy Spirit, but go wait in Jerusalem till that happens. Now, when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. He's ascended. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go to heaven, go into heaven. So they return to Jerusalem. They go to the upper room. I'm going to fast forward here because we've got a little bit of time. They get together and they pray and they're fasting and they're singing songs together. And they decided to find a replacement for Judas who had hung himself, one of the 12. They chose Matthias out of the two. They believe that's what the Lord wanted them to do. And they chose him to be the 12th disciple. They thought that needed to be a good number and they needed to go and have that with them. So that's what they did. Chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. There's 120 of them. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were seating, um, sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, look, are not all those or all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya, joining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues, the wonderful works of God. 
So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Mothers mocked, saying they're full of new wine. Then Peter gives a message in Jerusalem. This is the fulfilling of the Great Commission. You'll preach and talk about me in Jerusalem and Judea and the outer part. Jerusalem, this is the first moment. Gives a beautiful sermon, very simple. And at the end of it, 3,000 people get saved. That's the power of the Holy Spirit in someone's life, working through them. Every one of us this morning needs this. Every one of us needs this. If we're going to be effective ministers of God, we need this power. Yes, we're saved. Yes, we're celebrating his resurrection. But the Great Commission cannot take place until we're endued with power from on high to go fulfill that Great Commission. To be given the gifts necessary to fulfill that mission, we have to have this. And as you read through the book of Acts, which is the acts of the Holy Spirit working through men, not the acts of the church or the disciples. It's the acts of the Holy Spirit. Over and over again, these men get filled over and over as they minister. We need this. This morning, we're all in different places. We're all celebrating. He is risen. We love that simple, beautiful message because it's the most important message of all of Christianity, that Jesus rose from the dead. But some are not saved this morning. Some have never made Jesus their Lord and Savior, and this needs to be the day of salvation for you. But it's up to you. It's a choice. And I'll explain that in a minute. Some of you need to be reminded that you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit, that you need to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, not in your own strength and abilities, not in your own mind and your own heart, but with the new mind, new heart, with his power to do the ministry. And then some of you need to be baptized for the first time. You never even knew that the Holy Spirit was something that God could give you. He, he says so several times. If you ask for a stone, or if you ask for a loaf of bread, will he give you a stone? If you ask for an egg, will he give you a serpent? How much more then will our Father in heaven give us the Holy Spirit to those who ask? You need to ask. It's a very simple prayer, and he's nothing to be scared of. We see too much stuff on TV that freaks us out about the Holy Spirit. It's not normal. It's not accurate. Corinthian church and the letters to the Corinthian church explain to us exactly how the Holy Spirit works in church, in group settings, very orderly, very much like Jesus. Not strange, not abnormal, but very much like just super natural, but very natural. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life. It's powerful. The gospel can be received. Peter, not the most eloquent guy on the group, you know. Every time he opened his mouth before the Holy Spirit, he usually stuck his foot in it. But his first opportunity to minister to a crowd, 3,000 people get saved, and that's not because he took lessons. He didn't take any classes on eloquence and public speaking because the Holy Spirit worked through him. We need this. So start with salvation. Your sins have separated you from God. He's a perfect God. He needs perfection. And my sins, my rebellion against God, we'll call it what it is, flat out red-handed rebellion against God, have separated me from him. And I've made those decisions myself, all on my own. I choose to not walk with God and to be a disobedient to him, to live my own life, to follow the dictates of my own heart, not God's. 
And that's made me estranged from my Father in heaven. I feel distant. I don't feel safe. I feel far away from him. But that's because of me and my choices. He's never wanted that, never desired that for us. We've walked away from him, not the other way around. Knowing that we're in that state, he made a way for us to come back to him. How do I take care of the sin in my life, which demands death without dying? And that's what we celebrate at Easter time. The entire Old Testament is about animal sacrifices being offered up to cover over the sins of the nation of Israel and anybody else that wanted to follow this tradition. And even David knew when he wrote the Psalms that I know that you're not satisfied with the blood of bulls and goats. I know that doesn't do what needs to be done. So when John the Baptist sees his cousin Jesus coming from afar off, he says, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. This is the one that all those animals pointed to and foreshadowed. The coming of the Son of God coming to die on the cross for our sins, to take the penalty we deserve and to put it upon himself. And when he went to the cross, we were nailed there with him. We were crucified with him, our flesh, our sins, everything. So that our sins are never remembered. As far as the east is from the west, he's forgotten our sins. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I trust in him. What must we do to do the works of God? They asked him. They asked the disciples. He said, believe on him whom he sent. That's your work today. If you are separated from God because of your sins, your simple work today is to say, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I believe there's nothing I can do to make myself right before God. I am completely dependent upon Jesus and his work at the cross. I believe he died and rose again. I believe this resurrection Sunday is about him being the accepted sacrifice because death can hold a sinner. Death cannot hold a sinless man. And so Jesus rose from the dead. Death could not hold him. He was perfect without sin. And so that resurrection, I was resurrected with him at that time. This morning, Lord, I want to be born again. That's what you're asking. Jesus told Nicodemus, who came to him at night, we've read about him earlier in chapter 3 of John, what must I do? You've got to be born again, Nicodemus. He didn't understand that. He says, no, you've been born in the flesh. You're walking around. You're a living, breathing human being, but your spirit is dead. You need to be born again. We've described this several times, but for those who don't know, we're made in God's image, body, soul, and spirit. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's on that spirit that we fellowship with him. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, body, soul, and spirit. When we ate of that fruit, when we sin against God, that spirit dies. We have no fellowship with God. We have no relationship with him at all. Being born again is God reviving that spirit. To where we can now walk in the spirit. We can walk in communion with God again, like Adam and Eve did, like all, like everybody can, if they believe on him this morning. I believe. Secondly, I want to wait in Jerusalem to be filled with the Holy Spirit so I can serve him. I don't want to stick my foot in my mouth. I want to do what's right. I want to say the right things. I want to be, I want to go where the spirit leads me. I want to obey the voice. I want to do what he tells me to do. I don't want to manufacture. I don't want to connive. I don't want to manipulate. I just want to walk. And I need the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit too. And for those of us who maybe gotten a little stale, God fill us up again. Revive us again. Breathe new life into us again. 
If the disciples needed it, certainly we do. And so that's where we're going to close today in prayer with those three prayers. You join in at any point. Wherever you are, this is where God meets you. Jesus, we thank you this morning for your testimony to us, your, your proof, your evidence. When you rose from the dead, we know that it worked. We know that it was an accepted sacrifice that truly the veil was ripped from top to bottom, that there's no longer any barriers, no distance between us, and that we can boldly come to you through your son, Jesus, anytime, anywhere. So this morning, we confess our sins to you. We know that we've been in rebellion against you, that our disobedience to you has caused us to feel alienated from you and separated from you and distant. But today we draw near. Today on this day, we draw near. And we know that your word says that you'll draw near to us when we draw near to you. Lord, we confess our sins to you. We ask for forgiveness. We receive the forgiveness that we can have through your son, Jesus, that our sins are forgotten, that you'll never remember them, that you'll accept us as we are, as sons and daughters of yours, adopted into your family. Lord, we want to be born again. We want to have that spirit revived that we can have fellowship with you every time we read your word, every time we pray, every time we walk, wherever we go, that you would have that communion with us, that we'd know you're present. We, de- we desire that. We want that. Lord, for those of us who are saved and love you, we want to be filled with the Spirit. We don't want to do ministry in our own strength. We want to do it in your strength, under your guidance. If you say wait, we want to wait. If you say go, we want to go. And when we do open our mouths and when we do the work of the ministry, we pray that we're empowered from your Holy Spirit. That people would get saved. That they would hear your word and understand it. That ministry would be fruitful. It would bring you glory. So Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit. You said, if we ask, that you'll, that you'll give. And so we're, we're only doing what your word says. So we're, we're calling out today. Lord, some of us have been filled and need a fresh filling. We get weary sometimes. We get tired. We know we're not supposed to be weary and well-doing, but the truth is we get weary. That's when we fall off and get in our own strength because our own flesh can only go so far and then we quit. Then we want to quit. But by the power of your Holy Spirit, we continue. So Lord, fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit as a body, as a group of believers. Fill us again to overflowing. Lord, we, we ask. We earnestly desire the best gifts. We don't know what gifts of the Holy Spirit we're supposed to have and use, but you're the one that distributes. It's your choice. You know what ministry you've called us to, the actions that we're going to need to take, the, the people that are being our path. So we pray for the best gifts, whatever those are for whatever mission you call us to, would you equip us today for the work of the ministry? Help us to be about your business, Lord. We love you. Bless these people as they go today, as they celebrate the rest of this day. Uh, The weather may be gloomy, but inside we're full of sunshine, Lord. Thank you for this. Thank you for your resurrection. and Thank you for this reminder, the newness of life that we have in you. We look forward to your second coming, but until you do come, we will occupy. We'll be about your business in Jesus' name. Amen. If you need prayer before you go, please come up. Be glad to pray with you. Otherwise, have a, a great Easter this week.